Good afternoon. It's Friday the 24th, February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And by video link, we've got Vanessa Bailey uh, back from her trip to Aleppo. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. But we'll start off uh, today with, of course, it's the one year anniversary of the beginning of the uh, special operation by Russia in Ukraine. A year of war, Russian military intervention in Ukraine, Western mainstream media will call it the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Moscow called it the special military operation, whatever you call it, we're a year in, Mike. So let's do a general assessment of what has happened um, and give some updates about what's happened this week. Things have really stepped up this week. I think the general consensus, Mike, is that uh, things are something big is going to happen or things are going to happen that are going to be very consequential right. now. Uh, it seems like the appetite for this conflict is waning, especially in the United States. Um, so that's going to be a big problem. Uh, for the war effort. So but you do mean in terms of the, the general public, because certainly not the political class? Oh, the political class as, as well. well. Oh right. yeah, the general public and the political class, especially on the Republican side uh, with the new Republican House of Representatives. So they're talking about auditing uh, any money that's being sent or any funds that are being allocated towards Ukraine. They want a full audit. Um, this is what some of the Republican House members and senators are, are demanding now. Right. Um, so that's a big change. So. Um, from that point of view, uh, it's not looking good on the military side either. Uh, it seems like there's an ammo shortage uh, as well as all sorts of just general running crisis uh, for arming uh, the Ukrainian forces there. So what have we got on that front? Uh, well, before we get to that, uh, we've got, oh yes, we've got uh, NATO uh, claiming that uh, we're warned of donor ammunition shortages. Now, this has been more and more rhetoric from various commentators and politicians on this and admission that they're actually running out. Uh, but uh, what are they going to do about it once they do run out? That's the question. It is. Well, what is what Stoltenberg said, as you reported, I think, a few weeks ago. The, at the current rate, Ukraine's ammunition expenditure is many times higher than our current production rates. So they're having to empty out European or other NATO member stockades in order to keep the pace. One of the big arms manufacturers, coincidentally, Mike, in Europe is Serbia. Um, Serbia is supplying ammunition to all parties uh, in this conflict. Um, so there's, uh, that's going to be a big issue. So there's a lot of pressure being put on Serbia. There's also Serbia is having to hold back uh, quite a bit for its own supplies uh, because tensions are ramping up there with Kosovo. Uh, so that could become a flashpoint. So again, very key country there, Serbia, in this whole matrix. Uh, but as far as the, the West is concerned, and uh, the UK in particular, uh, the insanity continues. Uh, here's uh, Ben Wallace talking about the question of jets. Um, and, well, just have a listen to this. I think what we've done is uh, said two things. One is we're going to start the process of training Ukrainian pilots uh, for the long-term resilience of Ukraine on our fighter planes, because after this war is over, Ukraine will need to be able to defend itself and and giving them that capability is really important. But in the timescales of this conflict right now, the ability for us to train uh, pilots onto typhoons and then train them on the fighting of typhoons, because fighting aircraft is a very complicated, layered process. And you also require about 200 people to look after the jets, like a, like a Formula One pit crew, if you know what I mean. And we're not, you know, the West is not putting in, uh, you know, RAF personnel or, or other Air Force personnel into Ukraine. Uh, so the other quick way that Ukraine can benefit from uh, fighter jets is for those countries in Europe that have Russian or Soviet fighter jets, so MiG-29s or 
SU-24. If they wish to donate, we could use our fighter jets to backfill and provide security uh, for them as a result, or indeed to backfill to allow them to have their own capability, because they are already configured to fight in a NATO way, where, of course, Ukraine isn't. So, uh, you know, that that is just absolute nuts from I mean Ben Wallace's office head. So basically, uh, you know, we backfill. So the MiGs and whatever else go to Ukraine where they'll be turned into dust very quickly. Uh, and then the other question is, if if we're training uh, pilots, well, how long are those pilots going to last in theater? Actually, they're going to be shot down fairly quickly. Uh, so is that training uh, of any value, actually, at the end of the day? That training takes years, Mike. Right. Years. Well, it, for our pilots, think about what it goes into learning those aircrafts and then being able to fly combat maneuvers in those aircrafts. It takes years. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, this is all fanciful talk. Um, and a lot of this is just posturing. What is this at the end of the day, Mike? It's business, isn't it? Dump all your old Soviet or Russian-made stock. On Ukraine. Replace it with U.S. and British stock. This is just a big... NATO is an international protection racket. Yes. That's what it's become. And so they're buy our stuff. They're not going to give those typhoons for free to their European NATO partners. Are you kidding me? They're going to be paying for that. Absolutely. So yeah, this is just ridiculous. The conversation continues. Uh, yeah, and it continues with Boris as well, who's trying to keep the pressure on in the UK, because I suspect there's probably a little bit of uh, infighting going on within the UK. Uh, there's got to be a recognition within the, the military that they are handing away all their stockpiles and there's no way to replace them. So the tension within the establishment in the UK must be pretty high, as with the United States and other places. So Boris trying to keep the momentum going here. Let's have a listen to what he said on Sky News. If Rishi Sunak doesn't significantly increase defence spending in the next budget, would he be failing as a wartime leader? Well, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple of sort of ifs there. Uh, Mark, and I, th I think that uh, I, I pay tribute to the, the government, the Prime Minister, Defence Secretary, what they're continuing to, to do. And the UK remains way out uh, in, in front. It's one of the, the big donors uh, to Ukraine, not just of, uh, of humanitarian assistance, but of that crucial military assistance. And what I'm saying now is that when it comes to things like fighter jets, of course, you know, what, the, what the Ukrainians want is uh, F-16s, uh, as it happens, uh, we don't have S-16s, we do have typhoons. I think there's an argument for the UK breaking the ice uh, and, and giving them some typhoons. If it's a question of, of uh, training people up to use those machines, then we can do that. So there we go. So planes are machines now. Yes. But Boris nearly said we're going to give them F-16s. He had to stop and like check himself because he wasn't sure what planes uh, Britain actually had. But the thing that, Mike, disturbed me the most about that is the Sky presenter saying, uh, is Rishi Sunak really a wartime leader? Mm. So is, is Britain officially at war? What, what yes. is the status? Yes. What's the official line on this? So the, the press is using the rhetoric, everybody's using the rhetoric. So what, we're going to invoke the blitz spirit again? Well, we did that during COVID, didn't we? Uh, during lockdown. Certainly. So maybe we're going to do it again. I don't know. But um, not terribly impressive, Boris Johnson, is he? Uh, but what about Greece? Is Greece supplying weapons? Well, there's a lot of people. There, basically, Zelensky's doing the rounds. Okay, he's doing the rounds. He's begging and demanding at the same time. That's beg-manding. This is a new concept 
being pioneered by Zelensky. Um, so he's, he's gone to Greece and he's basically saying, Greece, hand over your Russian S-300 uh, missile defense systems, mobile systems. And uh, Greece is thinking about it for a few minutes and thinking, no, no, we're not going to give those uh, away. <laughs> so he's, he, why not? And so the U.S. has moved in in this. Here, there's a story here on RT, um, and they've translated this from the Greek news service here from National Broadcaster. Um, and so the U.S. is saying, hey, give them your S-300, same thing as the Ben Wallace right. uh, swap trade backfill. Um, we'll replace those with U.S. Patriot systems. Well, the problem is, Mike, Greece is not very impressed with the U.S. Patriot systems. They say, no, no, we want our Russian S-300s. We're not going to give them to Zelensky. Um, so, sorry, no deal. And so Zelensky's thrown a tantrum about this. He's really upset, doesn't understand, is disrespectful by the Greeks, and so forth. Um, so this, this whole charade is just getting more ridiculous by the day. Right. Okay, well, let's have a look at the propaganda then on the anniversary. So here's the BBC. Uh, and of course, they, the front page of the main page of the BBC News website, absolutely covered with this stuff. But I just thought we'd have a look at the, the newspapers. About a 50-50 split, it seems, uh, with those that are uh, worried about uh, the anniversary and those that aren't. So uh, here's the I. Uh, well, they have a section about homes for Ukraine, uh, but really they're more interested on the NHS. Uh, the Sun is more interested in football commentators. Uh, the Daily Telegraph, though, is interested in Ukraine, but uh, they're interested in peace deals, it seems. Uh, the Times, uh, most vehement that this was Ukraine's year of blood. Look at the image on this. Yes. Is this unbelievable or what? The demagoguery, the nationalism, they're really going for it. Uh, the Daily Star talking about the shortage of fruit and vegetables in the UK. That's their main uh, story. Uh, and uh, the Daily Express talking about uh, rolled Dal books and the fact that they're uh, rewriting those to remove uh, what would be considered uh, dodgy language. Uh, this is the woke agenda at work here, although there is a small section up in the top left with Ukraine in it. Uh, the Daily Mail is more interested about Roald Dahl as well, but half the page is a little bit on Ukraine. But look at the top corner, Mike, the Slava Ukraini. So this yes. is Ukrainian nationalist slogan and the Ukrainian flag being uh, emblazoned there on the masthead of the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail yes. a major uh, UK daily newspaper. That in itself is incredible. Uh, the Daily Mirror is uh, back on the turnips issue, although they do have a one year on, the unbreakable spirit, the Metro full on with the, uh, with the, the full propaganda. Heroes never give in, look at this. Isn't it, it's amazing, isn't amazing. It? breathtaking so, stuff. So let's come back to the politicians. What are they up to? Well, here's Ben Wallace tweeting this out. Slava Ukraini, of course, my friend. This is for to uh, Reznikov. Uh, my friend, Ukraine is not alone. Your country has inspired us all with your bravery and determination. Wait, Mike, what's your reply going to be? You no, put it up there. No, no, I, I, haven't, I haven't tweeted my reply. But guess who was the first group to tweet the reply? I'm going to ask Vanessa for a thought on this as well. It was none other than NEFO. NEFO? Oh, that's NATO's uh, troll army. NATO's tro uh, troll army. Marauding on Twitter. Um, they're doing such a brilliant job at uh, putting, uh, you know, despicable memes and other disgusting material in yeah. threads. So I, I don't know what you've got, if you've got a thought. We've got a, a, a little video clip coming up in a second with more propaganda. But uh, Vanessa, just very quickly, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on this type of thing. And the fact that, that the troll army rolls in to support politicians uh, yeah, it's just incredible. Matthew Van Dyke, the CIA agent that was also embedded in Libya and Syria prior to handling 
the the NAFO agents, such as they are, whether they're bots or real people or kind of 77th Brigade types. But I don't know if you've included the, the painting of the road outside the Russian embassy. Uh, we will be that? getting to that. Yes, we will be. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'll save my comments then. Okay. Right. Okay. So so let's uh, let's move on then to to the British government's uh, piece of Ukraine propaganda. Uh, this is from the Ministry of Defence. Ukraine one re one year on. Let's have a watch of this. On the twenty fourth of February, forces of the Russian army, unprovoked, crossed into Ukraine sovereign territory. I announced the House that the government's intentions to supply military aid to the Ukrainian armed forces. Body armor, helmets, boots, ear defenders, ration packs, range fighters and communication equipment. For the first time, it also included weapon systems. And in response to indiscriminate bombing from the air and escalation, I announced the UK would supply Starstreak anti-air missiles. I want to say a big uh, thank to our British uh, uh, comrades that helping us. If they are to have the best chance of survival on the front line, we need to make sure not only they are properly equipped, but they are properly trained as well. So I think that's enough of that. So who, who released that? That was the, the Ministry of Defence released that this morning. Right. So it's, it seemed like more like a promotion for Ben Wallace uh, than anything else. Well, it's designed with the music in the background and so on to, to really inspire and very gripping, sure, isn't yes, it? Get yes. you behind the war. But not not just Ukraine, because of course, the, uh, as we have been drawing parallels over the over the last period of time, it's not just Ukraine, because there've been parallels between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happened in in Syria and the type of propaganda that's been uh, built up around that. So not to be outdone, the UK government pushed out this little clip uh, and we'll show a segment from this as well, uh, which is all about Syria and how the Russians behave in Syria. And I'm very interested in Vanessa's thoughts of this just straight afterwards. I remember when we started feeling that something's going to happen in Ukraine, most of the world was still guessing whether or not Russians will do it or not. At that moment, I remember most Syrians, if not all, we were kind of sure that's going to happen because we know Putin regime and we know the Russian army. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between the Syrian conflict and the war in Ukraine. Of course, the most obvious one is the, uh, the war tactics adopted by the Russian armed forces, which have been implemented in Syria for the past eight years so far. Accountability for me is justice for the victims and justice as defined by the victims. So what do you think is a conflict that's far away from you or a conflict that you could look away from for the last 10 years is not the case because of infinity. Right, so that's enough of that as well. So uh, Vanessa, uh, what are your thoughts well, I mean, you know, from a Syria perspective, this is just absolutely despicable. I mean, meantime, the US, UK proxy uh, ISIS terrorist group has carried out at least two major attacks against civilians to the east of Homs. The last attack, they killed 53 civilians uh, and they've kidnapped uh, dozens of civilians. So ISIS has been resurrected exactly post the earthquake. Um, and when we're talking about recent Syrian or Russian attacks uh, against terrorist forces in Idlib in the northwest, 
uh, they've capitalized on the earthquake to advance militarily on Syrian Arab army positions. So none of this context is given. And I just want to make the point, Ibrahim Olabi, who they is the last interviewee there, is heavily embedded with the White Helmets, with Toby Cadman, with that entire kind of siege cartel that is allegedly bringing a case against uh, the Syrian government and President Assad. So, you know, what we're seeing now um, is complete exploitation of the earthquake to, to basically breathe life back into the entire complex that waged war against Syria um, and is now being weaponized against Russia and Ukraine. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So uh, we'll be coming back onto that topic a little bit later. But in the meantime, Rishi is uh, taking part in a virtual meeting of the G7 today. Uh, and uh, he, of course, is going to be attempting to get more uh, money, more arms uh, for Ukraine because uh, this is they've got to beat Putin, basically, is what he's saying. Uh, this must be our priority now. Instead of an incremental approach, we need to move faster on artillery, armor and air defense. These people are out of their heads because where is this uh, artillery, armor, and air defense going to come from? They've given it all away already. It's all posturing. So look, if the war ends, Mike, if the war ends uh, in six months, um, they're just going to basically re redirect this as building up Europeans' defenses right. to counter the Russian threat. So the, the whole thing is an exercise uh, in the militarization, the rearmament of Europe. Okay, so uh, he is finished off his little uh, comment by G7 to the coming weeks will be difficult for Ukraine, but they'll also be difficult for Russia. Uh, they're overreaching once again. I don't see any evidence of that, but okay, that's what his claim is. Uh, so now is the time to support Ukraine's plan to rearm, regroup and push forward. Uh, total nonsense. In the meantime then, yesterday, uh, there was a vote in the uh, United Nations General Assembly for an immediate end to the war in Ukraine. Uh, so th they say the uh, UN General Assembly on Thursday called for the ending of the war in Ukraine and demanded Russia's immediate withdrawal from the country in line with the UN Charter. Uh, so here's the result. Uh, and the result's quite interesting, Patrick. So 141 member states in favor, seven against, uh, Belarus, uh, 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 Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Eritrea, Mali, Nicaragua, Russia, and Syria, uh, and then 32 abstentions. Uh, the abstentions are interesting because that includes China, uh, Pakistan, India, uh, and uh, Iran, but actually quite a number of other countries, uh, particularly in the global south. Uh, but there are also another 15 or so countries that didn't seem to vote at all, including Azerbaijan, Burkina Faso, Lebanon, uh, Grenada, uh, and so on. Um, so, so it wasn't, uh, you know, in terms of uh, in favor, so it's 141 versus something around 60. It's not, it's not exactly an all-out uh, condemnation of the Russian position here. In South Africa as well. Uh, South Africa, so, absolutely. So the leading nations of Africa, of Asia, um, it abstained. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, that's, this is hardly, I mean, if you just go by the numbers, you know, <laughs> Djibouti and Dominica, Dominica and all these you know, smaller countries, the big players, India, China, uh, Iran, South Africa, these are not insignificant. No, and in terms of populations, that's a significant proportion of the planet. Yeah, it is. It is. So that's uh, very telling indeed, Mike, very telling. Indeed. So uh, in order to try and uh, uh, take advantage of uh, what the West is claiming is a successful vote. Uh, James Clever cleverly is at the Security Council today, uh, again, attempting to bully people into uh, uh, rearming and so on and condemnation of Russia. Uh, and uh, so 
It's good to see his colleagues are masked, though, behind him. Uh, well, that may not be from today, that, that image. That oh, is it? That may be from, that's uh, Barbara Wood. We're behind the beautiful Barbara behind him. But, There's uh, still a lot of people masked up, I noticed, yes. in, in America recently. So, Yes, uh, so where does that take us? Uh, we owe it to the people of Ukraine to bring Vladimir Putin to trial for war crimes. This is more from Gordon Brown. We, uh, we've covered the fact that he's pushing this campaign. And, of course, it's not about Patrick. It's not about... Uh, uh, war crimes. It's about aggression. The act of aggression is yeah. the claim. This is the new. This is the new uh, deadly sin, isn't it? Um, so yeah. So, look, a year on, Mike. And if they're talking about this, um, the West feel like they had success in the past with Slobodan Milosevic uh, in that sort of kangaroo court show trial in The Hague. That was an absolute abomination. Yes. Uh, when you look back at it, but um, but this isn't all bad news from for Russia because when you have. Uh, big leaders opining that uh, they want to drag Putin into uh, trial for war crimes. It pretty much means they've given up uh, on any kind of a military victory on this. Right. And they're all running to the uh, so-called international community um, to, to condemn him in some court somewhere or rather in absentia. Is that where it's yes, going to end up? It is, of, yeah, yeah. of course it is. So special tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavian uh, countries show they work. They don't work actually. Uh, but the U.S. must back one for Russia. So they need the United States to do this. So th you're talking about a U.N. Security Council member, Mike. So, I mean, this is just going to throw the whole international system uh, into turmoil right. if they take this route. I think a lot of this is just posturing. And there's also money available for this type of stuff. So for law firms and lawyers and stuff like that, it's always a good payday, isn't it, to run this sort of agenda for a few years. Everybody makes some money and everyone's happy, right? So let's take a look at this one, though. This is interesting. Did you notice, though, on this? So Gordon Brown's uh, coming out of the woodwork here on this. and uh, But this guy never shows up. Is it doing his, they're pastiching here. This is the great Steve Bell from 2007. <laughs> they never pull out Tony Blair to comment on Ukraine. Have you noticed that? Very rarely. And I just wonder why, Mike. Maybe it has something to do with the hypocrisy of uh, his role in, quote, violating the sanctimonious and sacred territorial integrity of uh, other countries like Iraq, for instance, and not just that, but lying to the country to do so, uh, and then occupying and devastating and flattening the country and destroying it right. for the next generation. So he's little Sid Vicious uh, pastiche here. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Tony Blair. Indeed. Uh, well, Seymour Hersh, uh, of course, exposed, apparently, what has happened with the uh, uh, the Nord Stream pipeline. He's followed up with another article. So this is uh, entitled From the Gulf of Tonkin to the Baltic Sea, the secret and incomplete history of US-Norway collaboration in co covert operations. So he's given a bit of a history of the, of the, uh, the uh, connections between Norway and Norwegian uh, special operations and the US. Uh, the simple answer, he says, is the Norwegian Navy, Navy has a long and murky history of cooperation with American intelligence. Five months ago, that teamwork, about which we still know very little, resulted in the destruction of two pipelines and orders of President Biden, with international implications yet to be determined. And six decades ago, so the histories of those years would have it, uh, a small group of Norwegian seamen were entangled uh, in a presiden uh, presidential de deceit that led to an early and bloody turning point in the Vietnam War. So he's talking about uh, uh, in early 1964, Norway provided a CIA, the CIA special heavily armed uh, but fast boats along with Norwegian captains to crew and train US and South Vietnamese uh, sailors for a long running series of clandestine uh, coastal attacks upon North Vietnam directed by the CIA and controlled by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington. 
Uh, and uh, this all, by the way, is uh, again based on uh, Hirsch's source within the intelligence community. And he's saying that the secret that these actions were prelude over several months prior to the North Vietnamese com uh, confronting U.S. destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, and that the rest of history, the rest is history. So, I mean, I recommend uh, people uh, read that article. Uh, and it looks like he's intending to sort of build, uh, fill in some of the gaps in people's knowledge about how some of these uh, black operations work. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's add to that also Sweden's role conducted, and we'll reiterate what we repeated in pre previously in the uh, broadcast, that they did the so-called investigation of the uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, incident site right after the incident and said, uh, well, we actually can't tell you what we found uh, because it's uh, nationally national security sensitivity. Yeah. So that's effectively Sweden, Norway's uh, neighbor playing their part in the cover-up. Right. And uh, just by way of uh, reminding everybody, of course, it was Norway that was more or less leading the charge into Libya with the bombing campaign, the NATO bombing campaign. Uh, when was that, 2011? Uh, yeah, they, they did the lion's share of sorties uh, in the initial waves. Uh, so a lot of people don't aren't aware of that. Right. So that was Norway. And Norway also was a, a great, Mike, it was a great um, uh, haven for recruiting uh, ISIS fighters uh, and other, quote, moderate rebels uh, to go into Syria and wreak havoc uh, there. And that's always something that's always overlooked uh, when we talk about Norway as well. Interesting country, a lot of interesting things going on in the background in Norway. Uh, now, uh, Vanessa uh, alluded to it, but let's come back to the Ukraine uh, propaganda issue uh, and the uh, propaganda piece that happened outside the Russian embassy yesterday. Let's watch this. Чогось наша славна Україна зажурилася, а ми твою червону калину so they, they, they continued to pour paint over the, uh, over the road. It was uh, yellow on one side, blue on the other side of the road. They held up a sign saying, uh, you know, it's washable paint, so don't worry driving over it, but drive slowly. Uh, and it was uh, this organization uh, led by donkeys. Led by donkeys. You're not kidding there, Mike. <laughs> so the, they're, they're, they're the artivists, I guess, activists, artivists. You know, when they start wheeling out the uh, ornate street art, and these sort of street the street theater, you know that again they're losing the actual argument. whatever war or argument that they're after. Um, so they've done this thing here, and uh, you know the the thing that was funny about this when you look at this event, um, the, the the amount of damage this did, and residents complained. Uh, people were driving over the paint um, and their their tires and things like that. So you know you, this would be called criminal damage, wouldn't it, if it was done by anybody else. Well, right? uh, well, indeed, that's absolutely the case. I mean, it's just shocking what, what they get up to here. And you notice in that video how they played this sort of emotive um, uh, uh, Ukrainian folk songs and these kind of ultra-nationalist folk songs and stuff like that. So they're really playing on the emotion and the demagoguery um, to capture. And again, it was like the, vic the victim's narrative. Justice can only be held or found by the victims. I mean, look at this. this is, look at the scene on this. So people were having to drive over this and so forth. So how is this acceptable? And you know what is the actual aim here, led by donkeys? Uh, yeah, you're not kidding there. Vanessa. <laughs> well, I, I mean, donkey is one of the worst insults in the Middle East, by the way. If you call someone a donkey, it's, it's, it's the worst. 
Um, of course, donkeys are rather nicer than this. But um, what is also incredible uh, is, I believe, from what I've seen uh, on social media, they were arrested after they finished their, their uh, vandalizing. Um, and as I pointed out on Twitter, if they had a brain between them, they'd have gone to the U.S. Embassy in London and painted a Syrian flag and demanded the end of the occupation there. But, you know, when you're supporting um, Nazi affiliates in Ukraine, then I guess that's what, what you stoop to. So these are the same groups, Mike, that were, you know, uh, doing Extinction Rebellion, uh, public uh, theater, and also... Uh, backing the proxy war in Syria. So basically they're completely aligned with whatever government policy right. is. That's Which is the, why they don't get arrested till after they've made their point. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, they, they sort of portray themselves as some kind of opposition group or it's ridiculous as anything but. So this is the establishment sort of street theater, agitprop sort of department at work, basically. Yes. Okay, and then let's come back to NATO then. And uh, what are they up to? Well, this one beauty there tweeted by NATO this morning. I absolutely love this. How could we not highlight this? Ukraine is hosting one of the great epics of this century, says NATO. What are they talking about here? And they've got this. So this is a, th a whole thread here um, glorifying uh, some embedded journalist, I guess. But uh, this is what they said. We are Harry Potter and William Wallace. And uh, the, the Navi and Han Solo uh, were escaping from Shawshank and blowing up the Death Star. We are fighting with the Harkonnens and challenging Thanos, says NATO. I mean, they're really just gone off the ledge here on this, Mike. So, but it's, it's very much geared towards children and teenagers and adults of, uh, who, who like Marvel Universe and stuff like this. I mean, this is just insane. Yes. It, that, that's, this is NATO's PR department. At work here. The only thing missing is uh, is the rainbow flag. I guess if we scroll down the thread further, you might, you might find it. You might find it. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, although China um, uh, abstained in the UNGA vote, um, they are actually calling for peace talks. Yeah, no, China stepped up this week. And this is interesting that this has happened this week, too, because you noticed how the uh, Western, especially the U.S., has said they have intelligence that China is supplying Russia or planning to supply them with lethal arms and that created this big upsurge in condemnation against China the last week. Right. Maybe they had an intelligence leak where they had some information about this and they ran with it because they knew this was coming. And so China is trying to position itself, Mike, um, as a sort of peacemaker. Uh, on this, and so, so it's a, they've asked Zelensky whether he would accept uh, a Chinese-led peace deal, and um, I don't think so. It, it didn't seem like it was a very strong um, answer from him that he was welcoming this, or the Ukrainian government will welcome something like this. Uh, so think they, his strings are too too tightly bound to uh, the West. Well, well, they they see China as an adversary because they're uh, on friendly terms with with Russia um, on this. So. But uh, what, what's interesting about this is so China is basically taking the lead, making the diplomatic foray on this. And this is really important because the United States is not. Right. All these officials that we've just shown, including the British one, saying um, that the only way to peace is if Vladimir Putin could end the war tomorrow. But not, nothing to do with like what the U.S. Could, could demand. Listen, if the U.S. wanted to put pressure on Kiev, this would be over literally in, in a day or two. Tr Donald Trump has now come out and said he would he would end this in a day mm. or in a week or whatever. So he's come out also saying, uh, calling Victoria Newland and these people kind of warmongers. So the, the GOP uh, story for the election's already starting to shape up. Nikki Haley's pro-war, Mike Pompeo's pro-war, Trump's 
positioning himself as an anti-war candidate, which is which is a strong play. For, At least as far as Ukraine's concerned, as, because whether that extends to China or not is another question. Right, right. Well, well, posturing and peace through strength is Trump's doctrine. Um, very different than actual intervention. So we'll see how, how how that plays out. So so on Twitter here, so Jordan Peterson has been weighing in recently, the high profile uh, personality, whatever. And some of the stuff he says on Ukraine is completely nonsensical and ridiculous, but he has such a big loyal following. Whatever he said, it's like he's like a prophet. So people sort of, you know, worship at his knees, whatever he's opining on. Mm -hmm. But his Ukrainian commentary is just ridiculous on so many different levels. But um, we'd, we'd lo I'd love to have a debate with him on it. But uh, so here he is. He's saying uh, he's tweeted this out. So basically, Victoria Newland said plans to invade Crimea. And so Peterson rightly is has tweeted this WTF POTUS to Biden. Mm -hmm. And he's saying this is basically an act of war. What's going on? So good on you, Jordan, for tweeting this. And it uh, elicited a response from Elon Musk. And he's replying here saying nobody is pushing this war more than Newland. And he's talking about Victoria Newland. She's the uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, in the US. And she's the big sort of brainchild behind the coup in 2014 in the Maidan. Um, so, so she was commenting recently on uh, Elon Musk uh, tweeting about her and reiterating her position on this. Watch this. I want to ask you a, a personal question. You have been in the news, or at least the, the Twitter sphere, in the last 24 hours. Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, uh, tweeted yesterday in response to some discussions about you. I'm quoting here, nobody is pushing this war more than Newland. And I'd like to ask your reaction. Well, I would start with a, a basic fact here which I'm confident is well known, which is if this war is to end, it could end tomorrow if Vladimir Putin choose, chose to end it and to withdraw his troops. Uh, so this is, this is not about us. This is about choices that Vladimir Putin has made um, to try to bite off pieces of his neighbor. And if we allow this as the United States, if we don't support the victim in this aggression, then this aggression will be replicated all over the planet in the years to come. And, you know, uh, particularly folks with young children ought to be thinking about the future that they want to live in. Right. That's a bit rich coming from her, Mike. So she's accusing Russia of biting off a piece of its neighbors. Well, uh, what about uh, NATO biting off a piece of, well, breaking up Yugoslavia yeah. and then biting off a chunk of Serbia known as Kosovo? It's a NATO protectorate. What about Iraqi Kurdistan? That didn't exist before the no-fly zone after Gulf War I. Right. But uh, it seems like the U.S. has been backing that piece, biting off that piece. And what about northeastern Syria? I think the United States is attempting to bite a piece of Syria off. The list goes on, and I can give you so many different examples, South Sudan, uh, you name it. So uh, in Libya, they're still masticating Libya at the moment, still still chewing it up. So, so Toria Newland, very interesting character, isn't she? She's got an ax to grind, and it goes back generations. And you find this with so many people who are taking leading foreign policy positions, be they in the United States, in Britain, or Europe, they have a pedigree, or Canada. Christia Freeland is a perfect example. Mm. They have a pedigree of anti-Russian animus that goes back generations here. And I want to direct people here to this amazing thread 
by uh, Igor Lopotnik. He's a filmmaker, very famous, most famous for Ukraine on Fire. It's a documentary he made with Oliver Stone. Go to his Twitter account and look at this thread. It's the history. It, it really charts Victoria Newland's interests right back in her interventions and involvement in all sorts of different conflicts leading up to today. And when you watch this, it is absolutely unbelievable. He goes chapter and verse on this here, and he shows all the different connections and links it up here, talking about her father. Her real name is uh, Noodleman, uh, Victoria, or her father's name, Victoria Noodleman. It was shortened uh, for uh, whatever United States uh, immigration purposes or whatever here, born in Moldova and Belarus. And this, her, her career is a vendetta against Russia because of uh, she felt that her grandfather was dejected and treated badly by the Soviets and so forth. And so she's, in a way, many of these people get recruited into positions, key positions, like Zbigniew Brzezinski is another one, anti-Russian to the core. Uh, and so he led the U.S. grand strategy on Russia with uh, incredible hate towards Russians and the Bolsheviks and so forth here. And her role in the Arab Spring, her fingerprints there. There's the film, uh, Ukraine on Fire, along with another uh, string of great documentaries related to that including Revealing Ukraine uh, in the Everlasting Present as well, a great trilogy uh, on the history of what brought us to this point in Ukraine. There's Revealing Ukraine there, great film. Um, his work is unbelievable. He's Ukrainian, he's an, he's an American Ukrainian dual citizen, or he's, he's now living in the United States, great filmmaker. And he breaks down in obviously her admission that the you know, Nord Stream 2 needs to be basically ended mm. uh, if, if Russia intervenes. Uh, in the Donbass and so forth here. So this is a, just an unbelievable resource, this thread. So I do encourage people, if you can, go follow uh, Igor Lopotnik, great filmmaker uh, on Twitter. Uh, definitely, if, you, if you're following his account, you get some great information and top-notch research, not to mention information about the releases of his films and so forth. Okay, right, look, we, uh, we need to move on, Patrick, so let's move through this one uh, reasonably quickly if we can, but the, this is... Uh... Uh, Kharkiv and uh, Sarah Ashton. Well, th th this film, uh, little snippet popped up on CBS today. Uh, Sarah Ashton Cirillo, uh, we've reported on this uh, character before, uh, in Kharkiv here, apparently in the trenches. Let's take a look at just this clip real quick. It's pretty interesting. So I want to point something out, Sarah. I've been following you on Twitter. I saw your last post. It was 15, 16 hours ago. You said that you were moving sort of closer to the front lines, but you did not look like that. So I have to ask you, I see the bandages. Are you okay? What's been happening over the last 24 hours or so? So an intense amount of fighting broke out. We are the 209th Battalion from Kharkiv Oblast. We're serving at what's known as the zero line. And at the zero line, it's our job to repel any Russian advances. There's nobody between us and the Russians. And due to this, uh, we were in a significant fight. We inflicted tremendous casualties on the invading forces, but the reality is I was hit by shell fragments. I've lost part of, I've lost part of my hand and I have significant scarring on my face. However, we decided to go ahead with this interview due to the fact that with the fighting still taking place above us, I'm in the trench right now, uh, we wanted to get the message out that Ukraine is stronger than ever after one year of the full-scale invasion. And we are looking forward to completing the victory and pushing Russia out 
and achieving the 1991 borders that uh, President Zelensky has stated is our goal. Okay. Oh, right. Lost part of, uh, by the way, it's, uh, uh, this is a trans soldier. This is a trans soldier. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, Vanessa, Vanessa would like to. Sarah Ashton Carter says you lost part of their hand. Get the pronouns right. Their hand. So keep an eye on that. If you see that hand in mint condition in a couple of weeks, just remember you saw that clip. And the 1991 borders, how are you going to achieve that? Are they planning to ethnically cleanse the Donbass of all of its residents and Russian speakers? Is there an ethnic cleansing uh, plan in there as well? So this is the crack team here from the, the U.S. Foreign Legion or whatever embedded in Kharkiv. What on earth is this circus all about? Well, well, we'll show you the, the background of this. We'll get Vanessa's comment in a minute. But here, I want to direct people to this great Substack article here. Sarah Ashton Cirillo, a.k.a. Michael John Cirillo, um, who was putting out some incredible stuff trying to get uh, Gonzalo Lira, uh, an American independent commentator, stroke journalist, who was in Kharkiv uh, early in the conflict here. Note this image was taken during her, or his red, or their red, redhead face. Sorry, get my pronouns right. Um, and uh, so this was when Gonzalo Lira went missing in 2022. And this sort of popped up on uh, old Ashton Cirillo's Twitter account, uh, basically calling him a Chilean spy or a Russian spy, a, Ch a Chilean Russian spy. So that's quite provocative, isn't it? Yeah. So that was a dog whistle to the SBU. Uh, so is Cirillo a U.S. intel and a PSYOP all in, wrapped into one? It really looks like it is. I mean, what great cover in the war zone, isn't it? In the trenches with the brave Ukrainian fighters, the, the trans mercenary. I mean, what a great story this is. But it doesn't end there. Look at this. This character has some pedigree, Mike. Went undercover and claims uh, they, she recruited the Proud Boys for the GOP. So went undercover in the Proud Boys to get them to basically get into the GOP fold on that. And so and it's interesting, this is the Daily Beast. This is the same publication that uh, outed Gonzalo Lira and tried to get him arrested yeah. with the SBU. So there's a direct connection here with Mr. or Mrs. or whoever. I, I'm so confused. I'm just going to apologize. I get the pronouns all mixed up. It's I'm, I'm an old school guy. I get confused. I apologize. I really don't mean any offense. Um, and here, look at this. How come the Daily Beast has removed this article, Mike? Are they embarrassed about it? Are they, are they trying to scrub the history of this operative, of this intelligence? It looks like an intelligence operative. So this is, what an incredible story. So just on to round it off, what, what are we looking at here? It's, is it just entertaining the troops, Mike? Is this USO stuff? Or is there more going on than that? We'll go to Vanessa, Vanessa. for a comment on that. Well, I mean, this is horribly or, or, or strangely reminiscent of Danny abdul Dayan and CNN um, that was, uh, oh, have I lost you? No, no, you're still here. Oh, I'm sorry. I've lost all pictures. Um, and uh, his sort of wonderful um, dramatic reporting from Homs, which was later revealed to be completely staged. And I have to say that was the quietest trench I've, I've ever, heard. ever seen. If she's yeah. she he is supposedly on the front lines. That was quite funny. And absolutely quite... no no wide uh wide angle camera <laughs> to show context. 
at all. So it was a very I, tight I shot, wasn't it, Vanessa? That nine out of ten. Yes. It's a very tight shot, Vanessa, wasn't it? I was hoping yeah. they, I was hoping they'd pan around the trench, right? <laughs> See some of the brave soldiers, and it could have been in a broom cupboard, for all we know. Um, so I don't know if, if Sarah's watching. Please uh, show us a, a wider, some more footage of that trench. Uh, we'd love to see it just, you know, for information purposes. Indeed. OK, let's move on. OK, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, and that'd be very much appreciated. You could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please uh, also do share anything you find on the various platforms. And Vanessa, we just wanted to uh, begin your segment with with this uh, petition uh, lift, about lifting sanctions on Syria. Yeah, um, I mean, basically, obviously now um, the EU has followed suit uh, with the US and ostensibly uh, lifted some sectors of the sanctions on Syria uh, and under the Caesar Act, which, of course, penalizes countries that comes to the assistance of Syria. Um, but to be honest, uh, they're relatively meaningless. They're only lifting for six months. They're refusing to work with the Syrian government just as the US did. So I know this is up at uh, change.org, which is not one of my favorites because it's a, a large part of the sort of billionaire complex influencing cartel. Um, but please sign it because we're only 6,000 signatures off the 35,000 required to actually, um, I think, put this through in parliament. So please do sign it regardless of, of where it's been um, published. Okay, so uh, let's move on then uh, to the white helmets. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I was actually talking to Corey Morningstar, um, who put me on track to investigate the white helmets. Uh, I think she wrote about them originally in 2014, one year after they were established by um, British military intelligence operative James Lemessurier, um, employed by Analysis Research and Knowledge Arc Group that's headed up by very probably an MI6 operative, Alistair Harris, who's operating in a number of um, countries around the world on behalf of the British government. And we were both talking about the fact that we're, we're suddenly post-earthquake seeing wall-to-wall -wall propaganda resurrecting the white helmet brand that of course have been extensively damaged by Syrian civilian accusations, including um, theft, murder, torture, detention, being embedded with armed groups dominated by Al-Qaeda, organ trafficking, child abduction for um, presenting um, their chemical weapon um, staged events. And of course, they were proven to be staged after the Duma 2018 chemical attack when the OPCW dissident inspectors who were on the ground pointed out that, that the uh, events at the medical center in Duma were staged, as I had already confirmed visiting uh, the medical center days after the alleged attack. So the brand itself had been we thought irreparably damaged. Um, they tried to revive it in Ukraine, the white helmets go to Ukraine. That didn't really um, work. In fact, it's, it really worked against them because people then started to affiliate them with the Nazi elements in Ukraine, particularly with the mercenaries going from the northeast of Syria <clears throat> into uh, Ukraine to fight alongside the Azov and Idar battalions. And also, of course, more recently, um, the influx of ISIS 
from Syria into Ukraine to to fight um, alongside the Ukrainian forces, such as they are now. But suddenly, <clears throat> after the earthquakes or the two earthquakes, major earthquakes that hit Syria uh, on the 6th of February, we've seen, uh, I mean, it's like Groundhog Day. We've gone back to the 2013 promotional material wall to wall across all media outlets. Who are the white helmets? The same kind of um, copy-paste Syria campaign narratives that were produced back then. Who are they? Volunteers, 3,000 volunteers saving 115,000 lives in Syria, et cetera, et cetera. But what I want to focus on today is the fact that, that um, here in Syria, we see that the West collectively and their allies in Israel and the Gulf states, namely Qatar and Saudi Arabia, are capitalizing on the humanitarian tragedy on the earthquake to effectively revive the military war against the Syrian government. I mentioned attacks carried out by ISIS. Um, the Western media is portraying attacks by Assad personally, of course, that's what they've always done, against terrorist positions in the Northwest. In reality, those so-called attacks have been defensive um, campaigns uh, to prevent the advance of the armed groups dominated by Al-Qaeda, known to be a U.S., admitted to be a U.S. asset inside Syria. And so the White Helmet resurrection, in my view, is part of this drive to rearm, re-equip, refinance the armed groups in the Northwest to lead um, a military campaign alongside ISIS in the Northeast, uh, Central Syria, and the southeast, um, and bolstered by the latest Israeli aggression on the 19th of February around 1 a.m., when they attacked um, various sites in Syria, including a number of sites in Damascus, killing five Syrian civilians, um, injuring dozens more, damaging the Damascus citadel, um, archaeological institutes, destroying historical documents, a UNESCO heritage site in Sueda to the south, of uh, Damascus, 300 kilometers away from the US um, military base in Al Tanaf. So um, what I'm trying to, to say today to people that are not aware of who the White Helmets are and who may be getting pulled into funding the various um, donation sites that are um, associated with the White Helmets, I want to try and point out how this uptake in funding has come as a result of the earthquake. Um, so in other words, the earthquake is being exploited by the West, um, while of course they're maintaining to a large degree the majority of the sanctions um, against the bulk of the Syrian population, the 80% living under the Syrian government protection. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, let's have a look. Uh, I'll run through quite quickly. And I've only really taken um, a small percentage of the funding campaigns that are out there linked to the White Helmet. So first of all, we sec see Secretary Antony Blinken. Today I'm announcing plans for additional $100 million to provide life-saving aid in Turkey and Syria. And I have to say also, when they mention Syria, they're talking about Northwest Syria. They're talking about the pocket of Syria that is controlled um, by Al-Qaeda or Hayat al al-Sham and Abu Mohammed Jolani. Um, the head of uh, Hayat Tari al-Sham, who, by the way, refused the convoy of 14 trucks of humanitarian aid that came from Damascus 
through southern Idlib. Um, and after a week of negotiation between Syrian Arab Red Crescent, the UAE, and the armed groups dominated by Jolani, Jolani put out a statement saying that he wouldn't legitimize the internationally recognized Syrian government and he wouldn't accept the aid. Activists on the ground told me he was asking for $10,000 per truck for it to enter Idlib to bring aid to the Syrian people under their occupation. So Blinken basically goes on. This is all part of this kind of um, rebranding or, or cleaning up of the white helmet brand so here he he states that he's honored to meet representatives of the syria civil defense of course we know they're not the syria civil defense the real syria civil defense was established in 1953 in syria and it's the only recognized syria civil defense by the international organization for civil defense in geneva um added to um, the US, so Blinken talks about 100 million, which will be distributed, part of it through USAID. We have Germany um, offering 30 million euros for NGOs. We assume among those um, will be the White Helmets in the Northwest, again, controlled by Al-Qaeda. Samantha Power, who heads up um, USAID under the Biden administration, is talking, look at the um, second part of her tweet, 85 million in funding. And of course, she had a conversation with Raid Saleh, um, the head of the White Helmets. And so we know that much of this funding um, will in effect go to the White Helmets. The White Helmets putting out their thank you tweet to Samantha Power, the USAID Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance Lead, photographed alongside uh, White Helmet um, management, and I have to say, all of this money, to our knowledge, is coming into bank accounts in Istanbul that are managed by the three directors of the White Helmets, um, Raid Saleh, Farouk Habib, and Munir Mustafa. And um, of course, we would like to have some transparency on how this money is going to be distributed into the Northwest, which, as I keep saying, is under the control of Al-Qaeda, again, from Samantha Powers. So she very kindly adds on an additional 5 million to assist with rescue equipment, fuel for life-saving operations, and crucial support for ambulance networks. We'll come on to that later. Um, interesting here, I just want to point out, look at the uniform and the branding of the white helmets. We're going very much towards um, kind of EU, UK fire brigade um, insignia. And notice, of course, that everything is in English, despite the fact that they work in an Arabic-speaking environment. Um, Ambassador uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the United States representative for the US, is talking about the decision to open two additional border crossings. So again, this is related, in my view, to the uptick in um, military support for the armed groups. Uh, and the revival of the um, military campaign to topple the Syrian government, while Syria itself is at its most uh, vulnerable. Qatar, uh, which of course originally put in around $3 billion into supporting regime change in Syria from 2011 onwards, and whose media was responsible um, for much of the propaganda that demonized the Syrian government. Now, interesting that they do actually state that they're going to support the operations of the White Helmets, but they're a little bit coy about mentioning um, the amount. Um, they say that basically uh, they are 
fundraising $10 million and they set aside $1 million. But we can assume um, that an awful lot more will be coming in from Qatar and Saudi Arabia. The Canadian government will provide an initial $10 million in aid to Turkey and Syria. Um, and Denmark, alongside the UK, uh, uh, Krona, $20 million to the Syria civil defense, so again, going directly to the White Helmets. Um, and I think uh, that's around um, $2 million, I think, uh, sterling, and a little bit more than that in dollars. Um, <clears throat> the UK government, not to be outdone, commits to additional uh, funding to the White Helmets to support search and rescue in Syria. Uh, the White Helmets thanked the British delegation, which was headed up by the Right Honourable Andrew Mitchell, who's the Minister of State for Demo Development in Africa. Of course, he was honoured to meet the White Helmet heroes involved in search and rescue operations in northwest Syria. Um, they've uh, released an additional additional 4.3 million pounds um, the uk foreign office funds the white helmets year on year 2.2 million minimum and i believe that 4.3 million has just been increased um, to 5 million i'll do a summary of all the funding so far at the end but then let's get on to what i call the kind of billionaire complex um, influencer Cartel, Choose Love, which was previously Help Refugees, has a target of 4.164 million to raise um, for the White Helmets. I recommend everybody goes to the UK column article, White Helmets and Hala Systems, the grotesque militarization of humanitarianism in Syria, where you will find a lot of information about Choose Love or Help Refugees as it was previously. This rebranding of these NGOs or the members of the NGO complex is very common when their reputation is tarnished. The, the, the rebranding happens just as, of course, it did with Al-Qaeda in Syria multiple times. Then we have Avaz. Avaz, um, instrumental in funding uh, the, the war campaign against the Syrian government from 2011 onwards. I mentioned Danny abdul Dayan before. Um, if people remember back in, I think it was 2012, Avaz had the Smuggle Hope for Syria campaign, which raised over two million to equip the so-called citizen journalists who produced much of the early propaganda before the White Helmets took over. So the latest Avaz campaign. I also want to draw your attention to the language that's being used by the media and by these funding campaigns. It's doomsday in Turkey and Syria. I've seen this across multiple media outlets. Um, Avaz, again, pushing the very familiar um, tagline on the white helmets, one brave group of Syrian volunteers is already responding, literally digging people out of rubble with bare hands. Pay attention to that sentence. The White Helmets are the best hope for people in parts of Syria. Well, they admit they omit the fact that it's the part of Syria that contains the majority of Al-Qaeda and affiliated um, armed terrorist groups, including the Uyghurs from China, Chechens, Saudi Arabians, Afghanistani, um, Turkestanis, etc. Um, and then they are crying out for rescue supplies, fuel and emergency shelter. And our movement could provide it in hours. That's interesting. Avaz could provide um, materials for uh, the White Helmets in the Northwest. 
Now, you'll also be seeing, and that's where I, I really want to draw people's attention to this, you're going to be seeing a lot of images like this, white helmets holding children aloft, a lot of cheering and shouting, and a lot of cameras, a lot of mobile phones, and very clean children, and children that don't look remotely traumatized by six, now 10 days under the rubble. Um, <clears throat> you're going to see a lot of that. Don't please be fooled by it. The real Syria civil defense, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent and the various emergency relief teams inside proper Syria are too busy actually doing their work to, to pose for photo, photo opportunities. Um, but note here the white helmets, thank Abbas. <clears throat> then you have, um, what's this one? The Voices Project USA, which is um, effectively Syria campaign, Syria campaign established by Ayman Asfari. Um, a UK-based uh, Syrian uh, oil baron uh, investigated by the serious uh, fraud um, organization um, that looked into his funding of the Conservative Party under Theresa May. Um, and this is the American version of the Syria campaign, but the Syria campaign have their own funding um, campaign going, again, showing very emotive pictures of the white helmets. GoFundMe that shut down multiple fundraisers for people inside Syria under the government protection, but however managed to raise 100,000 to support the white helmets. Um, Riot Saleh, head of the white helmets, was actually allowed to start a funding campaign with GoFundMe. It wasn't shut down. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, in Trafalgar Square City Hall, is assisting the Syrian community in creating Syria House, a space, a space where they can pay their respects. And we even have the royal family involved. In Trafalgar Square, the king launched Syria's house, oops, sorry, um, Syrian community tent, where members of the Syrian community can come together to support those who need it most. And guess who's on the left of King Charles? That's Ayman Asfari who I just mentioned, who has um, pretensions to the throne of Syria. Um, the king himself has committed um, to making a donation to the DEC appeal that has raised over 60 million for northwest Syria. Um, now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. So here we've got an interview on uh, Le Devoir, so on this interview, I'll translate from French. We've heard the cries of people under the rubble, but they said, we don't have equipment to save them. That's the White Helmets. And here you have one of the primary members of the White Helmets talking about the White Helmet needs fuel, search and rescue equipment, heavy vehicles, spare parts for vehicles, tires for vehicles. Now remember how many millions are being pledged to this organization of less than 3,000 volunteers. Now, in amongst the media uh, campaign, I found these photographs of the lack of heavy machinery while the White Helmets are allegedly digging people out from under the rubble. And then let's have a look back at, uh, this is uh, the White Helmet YouTube channel in Edlib, 15.2 subscribers. It's been running since 2013. And if you can play the video, Mike, I just want to show from one year ago the amount of machinery that the White Helmets had available to them. Oh, 
Um, and one point that I want to make during this video is the White Helmets operate with an annual budget from their various sponsors in the West uh, and in the Gulf states and Israel um, on 35 million, 35 million per year. The real Syria civil defense, 10,000 volunteers across 80% of the population of Syria have um, an annual budget of 50,000. While um, the White Helmets have all of this equipment, and while the White Helmets had in fact stolen equipment from the real Syria civil defense when they occupied areas where the real Syria civil defense operated. Um, <clears throat> in Aleppo, for example, I spoke to one of the captains of the Syria civil defense, the real one, and he told me that for 44 um, collapsed buildings, they only had seven machines to actually help them dig people out from under the rubble. So this gives you an indication um, and, and a comparison between the two organizations, one funded by the West in order to destabilize the country and criminalize the Syrian government, the other, the genuine Syria civil defense that is working for the Syrian people. So I want to look at this very quickly. Um, this is the Syria Regional Programme for USAID Final Report 2020. And note in the small print at the bottom that USAID and now the British government siphon their funding, not directly to the White Helmets, but through Kimonix uh, International. And let's have a look. So this was since 2013 to 2020. I've circled in red. So 46% of the funding, 25.2 million, went to the supply of heavy equipment for the White Helmets. So these claims that they don't have heavy equipment available are false. And so therefore, one has to ask, where are the millions going? And let's just do a quick recap of what I've talked about. So Blinken talked about 100 million, part of it via USAID. Um, and we also have to remember USAID's connections to the CIA. Germany, um, 30 million euros, so 31.7 million dollars. USAID, 85 million, plus an extra 5 million for the White Helmets. Denmark, in collaboration with the UK, 1.9 million. The UK Foreign Office, we think we're up to about 6 million now. Choose Love, oh, in dollars. Choose Love, 4.8 million. Um, DEC that I mentioned that the King Charles is going to be um, donating to, $72 million. Qatar, at least 10 million. Um, so the total is 316 million so far. And as I said, I've only scratched the surface. I've not looked into the EU, the UN pledges, et cetera. And the White Helmets, 20 million minimum. So their annual budget is 35 million. They're getting that anyway, one assumes. And here we have 20 million on top for 3,000 volunteers that already have all the equipment they need to dig people out. So why is this money needed? And just a quick reminder from um, John Pilger, award-winning journalist and filmmaker, as he said, I think in 2016 or 17, the White Helmets are a complete propaganda construct and he also mentioned they're working alongside Nusra Front, which is Al-Qaeda in Syria. Yes, indeed. And just to reiterate what uh, Vanessa said, people need to just understand all of that money, where you're talking about 300 million, 
maybe 20 million for the white helmets, but that 300 million all going to one small, tiny yeah. part of the country of Syria, it, mainly Idlib, which is is become the second Islamic state. Um, so it, what ISIS uh, had ambitions to create, they've actually created in Idlib. People need to understand that. That's where all that money is going. It's not going to Syria or the Syrian people throughout the country. That's just the important takeaway there. Okay, so I would encourage everybody to have a look at a website, which is fcdospending, fcdospending.ukcolumn.org, and you can have uh, it searchable. Have a look for how much money has gone to Commonics, which uh, Vanessa mentioned. If you search, uh, there's a drop-down list. You can choose Commonics from the list. Have a look at the money that's gone to them, and maybe uh, some people would like to put in some freedom of information requests and find out what that money was spent on. Because although uh, the FCDO does uh, tell us who they gave money to, they don't tell us what that money was for. And that's absolutely critical. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Now let's move on then to, uh, to cyber. Uh, and well, here we are. Here's the Ministry of Defense. Uh, this is from last year, this particular video. But this is uh, uh, Europe's largest cyber warfare exercises, which are taking place at the moment. Uh, this is the 2022 version, this particular promotional video. Uh, so this is organized by a team of cyber specialists from the British Army. Defense Cyber uh, Marvel 2 is uh, the uh, name of this year's uh, event. And it's a culmination of more than 12 months of training, apparently for 750 cyber specialists, including defense personnel, government agencies, industry partners, and other nations. So it was hosted in Tallinn in Estonia, of course. Uh, 900 personnel from the British Army took part from the Army, the Navy and the RAF uh, and it was uh, it ran for seven days. Uh, many teams were based in their home countries but were virtually connected uh, to cyber range controlled in Tallinn, Estonia, uh, enabling more countries to take part. So that was all very exciting. Um, so that's what the British military has been up to, running cyber campaigns and so on. Uh, this was an exercise, but of course, exercises are there to train for the for the real thing. In the meantime, uh, the British government is running the is attempting to get the online safety bill through, and we are making the point that this equals mass surveillance. So it'll come as no surprise to anybody uh, that uh, if uh, encryption technology, end-to-end -end encryption technology, and messaging applications is to be made illegal, as it seems to be, or at least backdoors are going to be required. Uh, with under this legislation, which would enable these kinds of cyber uh, activities to take place and government to track what people are doing. Uh, well, Signal, uh, the main sort of, or what many consider the most secure messaging app of the lot, have said they will remove access to the Signal app to anybody in the United Kingdom because they will not uh, be complying with uh, UK legislation on this. WhatsApp say they will not be complying with it uh, in any case. Uh, so we will see. This looks like it's going to become quite a fight, uh, Patrick. Not just surveillance, but censorship as well. Yes. The online safety bill, we might add. Uh, right. Now, let's just move on to energy. And, uh, well, here is uh, Alison Rose, who is the uh, group CEO of uh, NatWest. Uh, and she has been uh, named the co-chair of the Energy Efficiency Task Force in the UK. And that's going to spearhead efforts to reduce the UK's energy consumption uh, and, uh, and so on. So uh, look, here's a, a little bit of video because uh, they held an event and Jeremy Hunt was speaking at it. He was very excited to be speaking at it. He confirmed the appointment of Alison Rose as the chief executive or uh, uh, co-chair, sorry, of the Energy Efficiency Task Force. Uh, and so this event took place at uh, Plexel in the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. 
uh, and it was called Treasury Connect Green Industries. It was aimed at expanding the possibility of the green energy sector and so on. Uh, but anyway, look, uh, Alison Rose, of course, ch uh, chief executive of uh, NatWest, who don't really have the best reputation in terms of banking in general. I suppose she's there to try to clean it up. Uh, but she just gets paid by NatWest, by the way, £5.2 million pounds a year uh, with a cash bonus on top of that of 326000 uh, 500. So um, clearly she needs another job, Patrick, uh, but not West themselves, not shy of scandal, of course. Um, so uh, anyway, what can we say about that? This is all about shutting down uh, energy use, not just for not just encouraging us as individuals to use 15 percent less energy, but actually to get industry to use 15 percent less energy. What effect does that have on the economy, do you think? Well, the big question, Mike, isn't how much uh, energy you use, it's how much you're going to be charged for the energy you use. So we use less energy, but we pay more at the end of the month, right? Isn't that the plan? And Keir Starmer said it best uh, recently. He said, Britain needs to be a world superpower in sustainable energy. Isn't that an oxymoron? How can you be a world superpower uh, if you're running on sustainable energy, I can't see how those two things can coexist. Well, that's a very good point. So let's just put this on screen because this is, uh, uh, China, the Chinese owners of British Steel uh, basically saying that if energy prices don't come down, they're going to have to sh you know, reduce the quantity of steel that they produce in this country. They're going to have to reduce the number of people working for British Steel. Uh, of course, if the aim here is to cut industrial energy use by 15%, uh, what effect is that going to have, as I say, on energy? Well, the effects are already hint being hinted at in the headlines. The effects are already hitting like the supermarkets as well, because you talked about the fruit and veg shortage, and we apologize sure. for not reporting more on that. Hopefully we, we can do more of that at UK Column. But Mike, one of the things that's causing the shortage of vegetables is during the winter greenhouse months in the UK, where they're growing stuff indoors, the, the companies, Mike, have had to shut off because it's too expensive. So they just left it offline. It's not profitable. So you've got lettuce and cucumbers and all these other uh, staples that are normally plentiful uh, on major supermarket shelves in the UK. They're not there. And one of the reasons, not just because of imports, but be also because of what's produced domestically during the winter. So again, this is back to the energy issue. And we shouldn't underestimate, by the way, the amount of uh, the impact that the fact that the supermarkets are not sharing any of the massive profits that they're making at the moment with the producers themselves. Uh, so, of course, they can't afford the energy bills because they're not getting uh, the, you know, the, the supermarkets have cut their margins to the, the, the suppliers margins to the bone. And it's, it's back to what we said when this energy crisis began, Mike, we said the government is not addressing the cause of the spike in prices. They're looking for scapegoats. They're blaming Putin. They're not talking about the free-floating energy markets that Europe's running, a complete scam mm. uh, that's been just building up since 2000. And that's one of the reasons why we're at where we're at, not just that the sanctions against Russia, uh, just general energy strategy uh, by the UK and by Europe is completely bankrupt. Okay, let's uh, just let us uh, have a look at this. This is the UK Health Security Agency, uh, and uh, they have just uh, published their investigation into the risk of human health of avian influenza, uh, H5N1, in England. Uh, they have published their technical briefing. Uh, but let's just have a look and see what they're saying here. The latest evidence suggests that the avian influenza viruses we're seeing circulating in birds do not currently spread easily to people. However, viruses constantly evolve, and we will remain vigilant for any evidence of changing risk to the population as well as working with 
Partners to Address Gaps in Scientific Evidence. That's Dr. Mira Chand speaking on behalf of the UK HSA. Now, no matter what you think about that, that was their relatively measured uh, publication, right? Let's look at how the Daily Mail uh, reported this. Uh, Do you live near a bird flu hot zone? Interactive map reveals every case spotted in the last 12 months as officials drop COVID-style worst-case scenario models in case killer virus jumps to humans. So that's how the Daily Mail reported it. And look, they published a fantastic interactive map and we can see the darker colors. We can see where most uh, bird flu cases are. This is not, these aren't human bird flu cases, although the article implies that, but, but th- these, are, these are bird flu cases in birds. Uh, and therefore we've got to be extremely scared, Patrick. But look who's, look who's in the bottom right-hand corner there. Who's there, do you think? Who's there modeling already, getting prepared for the next lot, and the Daily Mail promoting him as if he isn't a complete disgrace to the scientific community? Is that the mad modeler himself? It is the mad modeler himself. He is being promoted by the Mail again uh, to push forward this. Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson. He of foot and mouth fame. Hasn't he done enough damage to society? Foot and, and to mouth, the world? COVID 19. It, it isn't just. And, well, anyway, the mail. No level of failure goes unrewarded in Absolutely. the system. But how do they find those bird flu cases? Did, do they say that? I know how they find <clears> them. <throat> guess, take a wild guess. How do they do their biosurveillance on bird flu? Guess what tool they use? Well, they use PCR, but of course... PCR tests. Uh, what, the, what, the, what they are actually admitting in, the, in uh, some of the coverage is that uh, not every case is actually... Uh, you know, if you find a dead bird, it's just put down to bird flu. They're not actually testing every every bird. No, it's a lot of this is done on supposition, and a lot of this is done on speculation. And and I didn't add this story. I should have. My apologies. Uh, just last night in Cambodia, the first jump from birds to humans, a dead Cambodian girl. I believe she was nine or eleven years old. Uh, so she died of a fever. They suspect it's bird flu. So that's good enough for the WHO and everybody else. So this is the first uh, j- successful zoonotic jump from birds to humans. Is there any claimed? Claimed. Yes. Is there any actual evidence that this girl actually had a pathogen known as uh, avian flu or bird flu? Um, we, we looked and we looked and I searched and we haven't found anything yet. What we have found though is massive, massive health problems socially in Cambodia due to poor water quality, uh, lack of sanitation at local markets and just general rancid food poisoning and things like this, it runs rife in Cambodia. But no, 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 no. They tested a PCR positive case of a bird in a, lo- in a nearby conservation area who they suspect had avian flu after they ramped the cycle count up on the PCR test. But hey, um, so that's it. They made the connection. They made the connection. So that's it. It's, on, it's there. And now uh, alarms are going off uh, uh, for a, pand- a potential epidemic zone. Uh, in Southeast Asia because of this. Right. So, yeah, th- this is a complete scam. I'm just going to say. Yes, but it's it's building. Yeah. It's building because the usual suspects are coming out of the woodwork, and before we know it, we're going to be they're, uh, they're desperate the headlines. For, they're desperate for this threat, and you know why? Because it means massive calls of chickens, turkeys, uh, poultry, and it's going to create food shortages, and then the it, it, it feeds into the WEF uh, vegan. and great. By the way, have you been to your local supermarket, Mike? Have you looked in the cricket section? Did you know there was a cricket section? Are you going to name the uh, particular supermarket that has a cricket section? Asda. Asda. Cricket flour. Cricket paste. There's other cricket products, okay? The bugs are there, folks. The bugs are on the shelves. Is anybody buying it? 
This no. sounds like a wild conspiracy theory, Patrick. It's, it's not. It's true. Go look for yourself. And by the way, go to the clearance section and you'll find these products at the end of the week because nobody's buying them. Okay, so there's a lost leader at the moment. They're hoping people are going to buy. What, what conditions would you find people buying something like this when there's a shortage of everything else? Yeah. Voila. Enter the crisis. Right. Okay. Well, look, uh, we're out of time, Patrick, but let's just end on this one. Uh, Queensland police target divergent thought considered as dangerous. Yeah. So thought crime is now they're coming out of the closet in Australia as we knew they would. Uh, so the fascists are basically marauding again uh, after the COVID crisis has uh, um, subsided. Mike, look at this. So what are they? Look, look who they're paying particular attention to. This is an internal police memo reports to describe the at-risk groups as conspiracy theorists, top of the list, uh, religious, social, or political extremists, sovereign citizens, of course, um, as well as people with ideologies relating to capitalism, communism, socialism, and Marxism. <laughs> so have, everyone then. Have they left anything out here? I mean, it's just, so everybody's at risk. Um, so everyone's a potential extremist. So thought crimes, basically. Yeah. That's what this is. They're, they're completely bonkers down there. And uh, we have good contacts in Queensland. We're going to try to follow up on this and see if we can learn more about this before next week. Okay, brilliant. Well, we'll talk a little bit about, more about this in extra in a couple of minutes, but we've got to finish there. Thank you very much to Patrick and Vanessa for being with us today. Uh, we'll be back shortly. See you then.